Well, good morning, everyone. Take a moment to say hi to someone close to you. Tell them thanks for being here. Tell them you're glad that they're with you. If you're not sitting next to someone, you find someone to sit next to. Shake a little hand. This is always the awkward moment for the introverted people, exciting for the extroverted. We, we get that. <laughs> so, um, so real quick, where is Jacob and Angela? Are they, they still in? Hey, guys, come here real quick. All right, Roy, don't take this personal, but the youth are leaving again today. But this is only because they're not going to be here for the next few weeks. All right, everyone, this is Jacob and Angela Dupin. Everybody just, just raise your hand, Jacob. There you go, shake. There you go. All right. All right, so these two, now, they look like they're still in high school, but they're not, all right? They're actually married. They're young adults. But they are going to be working with our youth. And so today, 6th through 12th grade, if you're here this morning, we encourage you to go out with them. And they're going to have their own time of teaching, just hanging out. And then they'll talk to you about some things that are coming up for youth in our church. And so we're just kind of moving gradually towards creating a youth ministry. And they are going to be part of that. So there you go. As they're leaving, follow them like sheep, all right? And they're the shepherds. Good job. So I have to take this off real quick because I feel like I'm on a leash. All right, there we go. So I want to, I want to set this up for you. For, for just a few minutes to kind of give you an idea of where we were a year ago. A year ago today, 38 people gathered in the home of Tony and Beth Nealon. And that particular day, we had, we had set this goal. We had, we, well, we had this kind of a goal in our mind of how much money we needed to, to really launched the church and we still needed operating funds to buy sound equipment and to buy coffee and to buy pr printing supplies all the things that you need to make church happen and so we gathered that day and we set out a basket and we just encouraged the people on our core team just to pray about what God would lead you to, to, to give and then other people who came that day just started putting money in this basket and when the day was done we had enough funds, enough money to cover all of the costs that we, we had to get the church started because we were getting ready to launch, start this church the next week. And, yeah, and last year it was Father's Day on June the 15th. And our goal was to meet at the YMCA to start this church. And we were, we were going to be excited if that day 50 people showed up. That was kind of our thought. Like, Man, we had 38 in the house. That's a good start. Like if 12 more people come, we know we're, we're off on a good start here. And we were blessed to have almost 100 people there that day. And it was an incredible, incredible time of worship, and we were so excited to, to get going. And during that time, we had, we had already been kind of just studying, and in, we've been in the word of the book of Colossians. And so it was fitting, I believe, that as we roll back around to our year anniversary, that's where we're going to be um, for the next few weeks in the book of Colossians. So this was a, a letter written to the church in Colossae or Colossae, depending on how you want to pronounce it. If you're ever in question about how to pronounce a word in the Bible, just do it with great confidence, and people will think you know what you're talking about, and they'll be really amazed. All right, don't stumble, just go with it, whatever you want it to be, all right? So before Roy comes up, Roy is going to, Roy True is going to speak this first word this morning. Before he become, comes up, I want to set up real quick for you this whole month, because this whole month is going to be packed full of incredible stuff. 
So for one, I want to encourage you to be reading the book of Colossians. It takes 15 minutes, and I'm not even, I'm not a great reader, but I can read it in 15 minutes. And so I want to encourage you to read the book of Colossians daily. And it's amazing how familiar you'll become with it, obviously, if you read it that often. So I want to encourage you to do that. Plus, there's a memory verse in each, uh, on each Sunday, and just hiding God's Word in your heart is a good thing. It's a good practice to get into, so I want to encourage you to do that as well. Next week is going to be a really special day in the life of our church because it's our one-year anniversary. And so we hope that you're planning on coming to church next week, and then after church, we're going to be going to the farmer's house that is the, it's located in between here and Weston on the right-hand side of the road, just across from where the Red Barn Farm is. And so we are going to be going there to, for a church picnic. And so I want you to be a part of that. We're just, we're, we've got, there'll be plenty of food, plenty of opportunities to so come and be a part of that celebration. We hope you can be there for that. The next week after that is Father's Day. And all three of my, well, all three of my birth daughters, Yesenia, I don't know if she wants to sing or not, but all three of my birth daughters are going to be singing in church that morning for Father's Day. It's going to be exciting. But after that, we'll have our children's retreat on the 22nd. So here's a perfect opportunity for you to, to do some ministry and evangelism in your community by inviting your friends. If you have friends that have small children, invite them to come to the children's retreat. That'll be a great opportunity to get them there to, to have some fun and hear the Word of God. And then on the last Sunday of the month is something I'm really, really excited about because we're going to be inviting a pastor from the inner city who was in prison for his faith in Cuba, got released from prison, came to America, planted a church here in Kansas City. He's coming to share his story here that morning. And then later on that day, we're going on a one-day counterculture or cross-cultural mission trip down into the inner city. You don't need a passport. You don't need any money. You're just going to go into that, to that church that night at 6, and I'm going to get a chance to speak at their church. And when we go, we're not coming empty-handed. We're coming with food, like non-perishable food items to donate, uh, clothing, anything you feel like that could be a blessing to someone else because they do a lot of ministry to homeless people in the Kansas City area. And so we're going on a mission trip right here in Kansas City, and I, and I would be blown away if our church was well-represented, if we go and we just fill up their sanctuary with people from our church to, to minister to them and let them obviously minister to us as well. So that's on the end of the month. So lots going on. Just pay attention to your bulletin website, all that stuff. So Roy, come on up. We're going to be looking at the book of Colossians for the next few weeks. And since I was on vacation, I thought, man, this would be a great chance for Roy to have an opportunity to preach. Roy loves God's word. He's a great teacher. And so uh, be kind to Roy. Listen with attentive ears. All right. Let's pray. I'm going to pray for Roy right now. Father, we thank you so much for the opportunity to be in your house. Thank you for what was going on a year ago today, where you've brought us to. We praise you for all of the, the people that we have had a chance to, to come in contact with, to build relationships with, to be um, church for and the church, be the church with them. God, I thank you for this man that's standing next to me. That God, you would pour yourself out into him and through him as we hear your word today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Okay, turn in your Bibles to Colossians chapter 1, please. Colossians chapter 1. And as Brady just said, we are going to start a series in the book of Colossians.
So today we're going to try to get through the entire first chapter. Colossians chapter 1. Let's just read the first couple of verses. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the holy and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae, grace and peace to you from God our Father. So, uh, this is a book, it's called one of Paul's prison epistles, because he wrote it when he was in prison in Rome, to the church at Colossae, uh, or however you want to pronounce it, as long as you do it like you really know. Um, to refute some false teaching that had arisen there in Colossae. So, Paul had apparently never been to the church, but he heard about it from Epaphras, who was their pastor, who came to visit him in prison. And he knew there was some false teaching going on there. So he wrote this letter to correct the false things. And before we actually get into it, I, I want to think about what the heresy was or the false teaching in Colossae. And we know a lot about it based on things that are written in the book. Um, in chapter 2, verse 8, Paul calls it a philosophy which is hollow and deceptive. We know it involved the worship of mystical beings or angels. Chapter 2, verse 15 through 19 talks about that. We know that it denied the deity and sufficiency of Christ. It said that Christ was an emanation Okay, now this is a little hard to comprehend, at least it was for me, because it doesn't really fit with our worldview. But part of this heresy was the Greek philosophy of dualism. And dualism is that everything physical is bad and everything spiritual is good. So you have these two, there's two of them, that's why it's called dualism, that are always in fighting. The physical, the evil, and the spiritual, the good. There, there's like an eternal battle. So this dualistic philosophy taught that matter is anything material or made of matter is bad, like the earth, like our bodies. They're evil. So the world could not have been made by a good God because it had to be made by someone evil because it's evil. So what they taught was that there was, uh, at the top a thing called the pleroma, which means fullness. It's a Greek word, pleroma. It means fullness. And we're going to talk about that later. But out of this fullness, that was God. That's where God originated. But out of this pleroma came other beings. They emanated from it, or they were created by it. They came out of it. So they're called emanations. So these emanations came down... Uh, there was a Pleroma, then you had an emanation, and another one, and another one, and another one. And each one was a little less good. All right? As you went down the line, each one was a little less good, a little less holy, a little more evil. And finally, we got down to one that was evil enough to make the world, to make something physical, which is bad. So somewhere down the line, you had an evil emanation who created the world. Okay, again, I know that's a lot to, because it doesn't fit with our worldview at all, but it's going to be important later on in this chapter that you understand just the background of that. So, uh, they taught that matter is evil and the idea of dualism. Matter is evil and spiritual things are good. They taught asceticism, which is that the body is evil 
and it must be treated as an enemy. Um, it had some aspects of Judaism with emphasis on ritual circumcision and dietary laws and the observation of holy days. So all of this leads us to see that the heresy in Colossae was syncretistic, which is just a big word that means it takes a bunch of different philosophies and tries to put them together. Philosophies that don't fit together, it tries to make them fit together. So it had Judaism, paganism, Greek philosophy, and Christianity kind of all mixed together. The main thing we need to understand about it is that it denied the deity of Christ and his sufficiency. And that's what all false religions do. They deny either or both of those. Either Christ is not God, or they may say that he is God, but his sacrifice is not sufficient for us. He is not sufficient for us. We need Christ plus something. Uh, so Paul wrote this letter to refute this heresy and to show us that Christ really is God and that he is really sufficient. He's all we need. His sacrifice is all we need to be right with God. His presence is all we need to live a holy life. And that's what Colossians is about. The theme of Colossians is the supremacy of Christ. And as you go through the book, and I encourage you also to read it, if you can read through the whole book in one setting, it'll help you get the big picture. And if you can do that several times over the next month, you'll start to see patterns. And you'll see that the book is about Christ is supreme over everything. He's supreme over creation. He's supreme over the church. He's supreme over human wisdom, over powers and authorities. He's supreme over everything. And the key verse, I would say, is Colossians 1.18. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have the supremacy. That's what the book is about, the supremacy of Jesus Christ. And in chapter 3, verse 11, he restates that in another way by saying, Christ is all and is in all. Okay, that's a background there. Uh, on the church, on the letter to Colossae, what was going on. And we see, we, we already read in verse 1 and 2 that this book is written by Paul to the holy ones in Colossae, or maybe your Bible says to the saints. Now a saint is not someone who's dead and hundreds of years later someone elects them to be a saint. A saint or holy one is a good translation. That's what a saint is, a holy one. And this is to all the holy ones in Colossae, and by extension, to all the holy ones here. A holy one is anyone who's put their trust in Christ. He makes us holy. So this letter is for us. Uh, and we're, uh, we're going to look at it, and hopefully, um, when we leave here today, you'll know more about Colossians, and uh, you'll be empowered to live more for the Lord. That's the goal of, of this sermon. All right, verse 3. Let's read just verses 3 through 8. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, because we've heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love you have for all the saints, the faith and love that spring from the hope that is stored up for you in heaven and that you have already heard about in the word of truth, the gospel that has come to you. All over the world, this gospel is bearing fruit and growing, just as it is just as it has been doing among you 
since the day you heard it and understood God's grace in its truth. You learned it from Epaphras, our dear fellow servant, who is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf, and who also told us of your love in the Spirit. I just want to point out to you in verse 5 where it talks about your faith and love spring from the hope that's in the gospel. And we're going to come back to talk about hope later. This is just uh, Paul's thanksgiving. Uh, he's telling the Colossians about his thanksgiving to God for them. Now look at verse 9. Verse 9 through 14, Paul tells the Colossians what he is asking God for on their behalf. His request to God on their behalf. Uh, verse 9, for this reason... Since the day we heard about you, we've not stopped praying for you. We continually ask God to fill you with the knowledge of his will through all the wisdom and understanding that the Spirit gives so that you may live a life worthy of the Lord and please him in every way, bearing fruit in every good work, growing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might so that you may have great endurance and patience and giving joyful thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of his holy people in the kingdom of light. For he has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the son he loves, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. So Paul's request for the Colossians is this, that they would be filled with the knowledge of God's will. The word filled with the knowledge of God's will, has the idea more than just knowing what God's will is. All right, if you have ever been filled with rage, that affects your actions, right? If you're filled with love, that affects your actions. If you're filled with sorrow, that affects your actions. So to be filled with the knowledge of God's will should affect our actions. All right, he's not just talking about knowledge, knowledge in our head. We know more about God's will. That's important. You have to know it in your head, but he's talking about more than that. He's talking about not just knowing, but doing. And he says, he, he prays that we'll be filled with the knowledge of God's will through, uh, through all the wisdom and understanding that the Spirit gives. So again, we have the words wisdom and understanding. And as you read the Bible, and especially if you read like in the books of Psalms and Proverbs, the Old Testament, the word wisdom is not about knowledge. It's not about knowing a lot. It's about living a godly life. So it's about knowing and applying it. He prays that they will have the wisdom and understanding that the Spirit gives. That means the ability to comprehend spiritual principles, and apply them to our lives. So he's praying that we'll know God's will and do it. This is opposed to the worldly wisdom that they were being taught there in, in uh, Colossae from the false teachers. So not the worldly wisdom or the false teacher's wisdom, but the wisdom of the word of God. It's found in the scripture. And the only way to find that, he says the spirit gives it, but how does the Spirit give us that wisdom? Through the Word of God. We need to read it, study it, meditate it, and pray. Pray about it. 
It's not enough just to read it or even to uh, study it or memorize it. We need to meditate on it and pray, and then the Holy Spirit will use that in our lives. And what's the purpose for that? Uh, what's the purpose of knowing God's will? Verse 10, so that, whenever you see the word so that, that's a purpose or a result. So that you may live a life worthy of the Lord and please him in every way. God, uh, Paul wants us to be filled with the knowledge of God's will so that we can live a life worthy of God and please him in every way. That's a pretty high goal. Live a life worthy of God and please him in every way. Think about this last week. Did you please God in every way? I know I didn't. But that's our goal. And that's what Paul wants for the Colossians and for us. And that's what we get from being filled with the knowledge of God's will. We can live a life that's worthy and please him in every way. But the only way to please God in every way is through living according to his will. That means if we want to please God in everything we do, we have to renounce worldly wisdom. We have to go away from worldly wisdom and go to spiritual wisdom, the wisdom of the Bible, the wisdom of God. And not only that, we have to renounce our own will and live according to God's will. That's the only way to live a life worthy and please God in every way. Then he gives us six fruits of a life that is worthy and pleasing to God in the next couple of verses here. Verse 10, he says, so that you may have, oh, let me go back a little bit. Uh, yeah, verse 10. So that you may live a life worthy of the Lord and please him in every way, bearing fruit in every good work. So the first evidence of a life that is pleasing to God is bearing fruit in every good work. Good works are the natural result of salvation. Once we're saved, we should begin doing good works. Good works don't save us, but they're the result of our salvation. And it's God's will. Ephesians 2.10 says, uh, we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus to do good works. That's why he created us. That's why he saved us, to do good works which God has prepared ahead of time for us to do. And doing good works is bearing fruit. And a plant bearing fruit is proof that it's alive. A Christian bearing fruit is proof that they're alive as a Christian. So the first thing is, first evidence of a life that's pleasing to God is bearing fruit. Secondly, he says, growing in the knowledge of God. Second Evidence of living a holy life is growth. Growth, again, we need to examine ourselves and kind of look back and say, am I growing? Where was I this time last year, last month, 10 years ago? Am I growing as a Christian or am I stagnant? Uh, a life that is pleasing to God involves growth, spiritual growth. And it says growing in the knowledge of God. So we should know more about God but more than that, 
we should know God more. That's the goal. Not just to know more about God, but to know God more. To be closer to him, to have a closer relationship with him. Then verse 11, strength. Strength is an evidence of a life that's pleasing to God. Verse 11, he says, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might. So we're being strengthened. That's a passive verb. It doesn't say strengthening yourself. It says being strengthened. Who's strengthening us? God is giving us strength. And how much strength? Being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might. There's three different words in there for strength and power. Strength, power, and might. We're talking about some power here. It's not ours, it's God's. And we should be seeing that power in our lives. And what's the purpose of the power? Again, it says, so that. Being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might, so that you might have great endurance and patience. Those are evidences of a godly life, endurance and patience. And they mean almost the same thing. Endurance means uh, striving on in spite of obstacles. All right, not giving up, bearing up under the load. And patience means almost exactly the same thing. If there's any difference, endurance might deal more with situations and patience might deal more with people. So we need to be able to endure under all situations and be patient with people. And then the sixth thing, sixth evidence or fruit of a life that's pleasing to God is joy. And at the, verse, at the end of verse 11, it says that you may have great endurance and patience with joy. Or some versions say, and giving joyful thanks to the Father. So the idea of endurance and patience is not just drudgery. I'm putting up with this because I'm enduring and I'm going to grit my teeth and make it through it. No, we have joy with the endurance. It doesn't mean we're happy about the trials. It doesn't mean we enjoy them. It means we have joy, which is more than happiness. It's a deep down inner peace and happiness because we know God is working in our lives through those trials. And then he goes on to explain why, why we should be joyful, why we should have joyful thanksgiving. Uh, verse 12, giving joyful thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of his holy people in the kingdom of light. For he has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the Son he loves, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. He lists three things right here that God the Father has done for us. He's qualified us to share in his inheritance. Now who is qualified to share in the inheritance? The children. So how did God qualify us to share in his inheritance? By making us his children. All right, on our own, we're not qualified to share in the inheritance. Uh, we're going to see that later where Paul says we're enemies of God. But he has qualified us. Secondly, he rescued us from the dominion of darkness. The word dominion means authority or power. So it's not that just that we were wandering around in a dark place 
uh, and couldn't see spiritually. That's true. We were in spiritual darkness. But more than that, we were in the dominion of darkness. Darkness had authority in our, in our lives. Darkness had domain, dominion over us. We were living under the power of darkness. But he rescued us from that, and he brought us into the kingdom of the son he loves. So he took us out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light, the kingdom of his son, Jesus, the son he loves. And he made us his children and made us uh, partakers in the inheritance. And then we see what Christ has given us in verse 14. In him, or in whom, it's talking about Jesus, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. So Christ has given us redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Redemption, or to redeem something, means to set it free, to deliver it, buying back of a slave or captive through the payment of a price. We were captives to darkness, verse 13 says. We were enslaved by passions and pleasures, Titus 3.3. We were slaves to sin, John 8.34. Slaves to this world, Ephesians 2.2. And we couldn't pay the price to save ourselves. The price was too high. We could not free ourselves. But Jesus paid the price to free us and bring us back to God. He paid the price for our redemption, which is the forgiveness of sins. M Matthew Henry said it like this. He saved us from the dominion of sin, which is darkness. He saved us from the dominion of Satan, which is the prince of darkness. He saved us from the damnation of hell, which is utter darkness. And he brought us into the kingdom of his son. Now, all of that is just Paul's introduction uh, to Colossians. That's just his greeting to the church, and it's kind of his introduction. Now, in verse 15 of chapter 1, he's going to get into the meat of what he wants to talk about. He's going to refute the heresy that's being taught in Colossae. And Colossians 1, 15 through 20, is one of the strongest... Uh, statements of the deity and sufficiency of Christ in the Bible. It's one of the most powerful statements of who Jesus is and what he's done for us. So let's look at the preeminence of Christ in chapter, in, uh, starting in verse 15. In 15 through 17, he talks about the preeminence of Christ over creation and in verses 18 through 20, he talks about the preeminence of Christ in redemption. So let's start reading with verse 15. The Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. So we want to talk about Christ as supreme over all creation. First of all, he's God. In verse 15, it says, the Son is the image of the invisible God. 
That means he's a visible representation of God. He's the exact as well as visible representation of God. When you look at Jesus, you see God. John 1.18 tells us, No one has ever seen God, but God, the one and only, who is at the Father's side, has made him known. Hebrews 1.3, The Son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. So the point is, when you look at Jesus, you see God. He's the visible representation of God because he is God. He's not a God. He's not a lesser God. He's God. Secondly, he's the heir. In the last part of verse 15, it says he's the firstborn over all creation, which means he's the heir. The firstborn is the heir, the, right, the one who has the right to the inheritance. Now, firstborn, uh, your Bible might say firstborn of creation. NIV translates it the firstborn over creation. Uh, some, the point of this is not that Jesus was the first created being. Uh, some cults believe that Jesus was created first and then created all other things. That is not the point of this. If Paul had wanted to say that Jesus was created first, he could have, there's a, a word in Greek that's first created. He could have used that word. There's a word that says first formed. If he had been trying to say that Jesus was created first, he would have used one of those words. But he used the word firstborn. So to us, uh, firstborn has a different meaning than it did in the New Testament time. To us, it just means the first one born in the family, right? The first kid is your firstborn. It had that meaning, but it also went beyond that. So I want to give you some other um, scriptures that will uh, explain what I mean. It, not, it didn't mean firstborn in order, necessarily. It could mean that. But it meant first in rank. In Exodus 4, 22, uh, God told this to Moses, go to, Arrow, go, to, go to Pharaoh, not Arrow, go to Pharaoh and say, this is what the Lord says, Israel is my firstborn son. Now we know that Israel was a new name that God gave to Jacob, right? Israel is my firstborn son, that's what God says. Jacob was not the firstborn son, his twin brother Esau was born first right? But God said, Israel is my firstborn son. Now, in the context in Exodus chapter 4, he's not really talking about Jacob, the person. He's talking about Israel, the nation. So go to Pharaoh and say, Israel is my firstborn son. Let my firstborn son go. But we know that Israel was not the first nation, was it? Egypt was a nation long before Israel was, and there were other nations before Israel. So we know it doesn't mean first in order. Not the first created nation, but first in rank, supremacy in rank. In Psalm 89, 27, again, this is God speaking about David this time. I will also appoint him my firstborn, the most exalted of the kings of the earth. He calls David the firstborn, 
And we know David was not the firstborn in his family. He was the youngest child. We also know that he wasn't the first king of Israel, or first king of anywhere, for that matter. But it explains it in the verse, I will, call him my, I will appoint him my firstborn, the most exalted of the kings of the earth. So firstborn does not necessarily mean the first in order. It means the first in rank. All right? Supreme in rank. Highest in rank. And by the New Testament times, this was pretty common that they would use the word firstborn to mean supreme in rank and have nothing to do with birth at all. We also know firstborn over creation is the best meaning because of the context. Um, just like in real estate, they say the three most important things are location, location, location. In understanding the Bible, the three most important things are context, context, context. So we look at this verse in context. It says, verse 15, he's the firstborn over creation. For, or because, in him all things were created. He's supreme over creation because he created everything. Also, the context of the whole paragraph and the whole book is that Christ is supreme. Not that he's the first in order, but that he's supreme over all these things. So he's firstborn over creation, meaning he is the one who created everything. And he is not a created being. He's the creator of all things, it says in verse 16. Verse 17 says he's before all things. So the use of the word firstborn means he's the preeminent one, the ranking one, the, right who has, the one who has the right to inheritance, and he has dominion over all creation. Uh, and then chapter, verse 16 tells us that he is the creator. Uh, verse 16, for in him... All things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. So he created everything, everything in heaven and on earth. Things that are visible, the things we can see, and things that are invisible, that we can't see. That includes everything that's good and everything that's bad. It includes what the Colossians would have thought of as the emanations, the good spiritual beings, which we would call angels, and the bad spiritual beings, which we would call demons. Those were created by Jesus. They are subject to, them, to him. He's not one of them. He's above them. They were created by him and through him and for him. He created them. He created even the evil beings. They weren't evil when he created them. When creation was done, what did God say? He looked at everything he had made, and behold, all that he made was very good. Not evil. And uh, I think it's 2 Peter talks about how the angels left their estate and fell. So Jesus created them, and they're subject to him. He is not subject to them at all. He created them for, they were created for him, for his purpose, for his glory. And we may not understand that. That's a little much for us to comprehend how God gets glory 
from the devil and demons being in the world, but he will get glory for it. And they're created for his glory, and they are subject to him. As we see in the book of Job, where the devil did all that stuff to Job, but he couldn't do it without God's permission. So he's the creator, he's over all those things. And then verse 17, he's the sustainer. He is before all things. Now notice it says he is before all things, not he was before all things. It's similar to John 8, 58, where Jesus said, before Abraham was, I am. It shows that he already existed before anything was created. It's the Bible's way of saying that he's eternal. He has no beginning. He's always existed. He is God from all eternity. So he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He holds the world together, which is what Hebrews 1.3 says. He holds the world together by his powerful world. So if Jesus stopped holding the world together, everything would just fly apart. Um, he created the natural laws that hold the world together, but he supernaturally holds it all together too. And then uh, we see that he's the head, of, he's supreme in redemption, verses 18 through 20. He's the head of the body, the church. He's the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have the supremacy. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him, and through him, to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. He's the head of the church. He's the head of this church. He's the head of the universal church, which includes all believers of all time. And he's not just the head like uh, the head of a corporation, like the boss. He's the head like a head is the head of a body, because that's what it says. Without the head, the body cannot live. Without Christ, the church cannot live. There would be no church. We get our life, our vitality from Jesus. He's the head. It says he's the beginning, the firstborn from among the dead. The beginning means he's the source. He's the source of the resurrection. He's the firstborn from among the dead because he's supreme in the rank of all who raise from the dead. And he's the one who gives life to everyone. He's the source of life. And then it says, so that in everything he might have the supremacy. He rose from the dead and became the source of our resurrection and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he would have the supremacy. He is supreme in everything. Uh, and... We have the choice of whether we want to make him supreme in our life or not. But he is supreme, and we need to get in line with his plan. And then verse 19 says, God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him. The word fullness goes back to the word I talked about in the introduction, the pleroma. So when the Colossians heard this, all the pleroma dwells in Jesus Paul was saying that we got the Pleroma here and all the emanations. He's not one of those emanations. He is the Pleroma. He is the fullness. He is the complete God, complete deity living in him in bodily form. Um, 
he is God. Again, that's just another strong statement. And then he reconciled, the Father reconciled all things to himself through Jesus. Reconciliation means to effect a thorough change back. So at one time, humanity was right with God after creation. Then we fell. Adam sinned, we all fell, and we've all been enemies with God. But Jesus Christ made it possible for us to be in right relationship with God again. And how did he do that? Through his blood shed on the cross. Hebrews 9.22 says, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. Jesus had to die a sacrificial death on the cross for us to be reconciled to God. Again, we couldn't pay the price. He paid it for us. And now let's look in verse 21 through 23 real quickly at the reconciliation. Once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior. So in the past, that was our condition. We were alienated from God. We were cut off, separated. Enemies, it says, or hostile in our attitude. But now, he has reconciled us to God through his physical body, telling the Colossians again that physical bodies aren't bad. Jesus had one, even though he was God. And in the future, he's going to present us holy and blameless if we continue in the faith. We don't continue in the faith to keep ourselves faith, saved. We can't save ourselves. We can't keep ourselves saved. It's an evidence of our faith. And skip down to verse 27. Uh, verse 26 talks about the mystery God has made known to us. To them God has chosen to make known among the Gentiles the glorious riches of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Christ in us is the hope of glory. Our only chance of glory, of heaven, of being right with God is Jesus. And hope in the Bible means more than just something we wish for. It means something that we're looking forward to because it hasn't happened yet, but we have confident assurance. So through Jesus Christ, we have confident assurance that someday we'll be in heaven with God. Someday our bodies will be resurrected and be perfect. That's the hope of glory, Christ in you. And uh, Hebrews tells us that this hope is an anchor for our soul. Without that hope, without Christ in us, we're hopeless. With him in us, we have the hope of glory. Let's bow for prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you for this uh, marvelous book of Colossians and the uh, deep, deep things in it for us. Thank you that we know that Jesus is supreme over all. He's the Lord of all, the creator and ruler of all, and that we can have him in our lives, and that's our only hope of glory. I pray that uh, we would rest on that hope and that we would continue firm in the faith, and that if there's anyone here who doesn't have the hope of glory, that you would speak to their hearts, draw them to you, and that they would be saved. In Christ's name, amen. God, we praise you for what was going on a year ago today when we put the basket before you, Father, and people put their gifts in there to make this church happen. And God, we continue to do that every single week. We just, we lay our offerings before you, Father, and we say continue the work that you're doing, continue to reach this community with the gospel of Jesus Christ. We thank you for this message this morning that Jesus, you are the fullness.
Everything comes from you. Everything that we have belongs to you anyway. And God, we just give a portion of it back to you today. We pray that we would be good stewards with it. We would invest it in the kingdom to, to pr produce good things, good works. Father, we praise you for that. We thank you for the people that are here today. God, bless them as they go from this place. Fill them up with your fullness. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for being here today. Uh, hope, come back next week. Get ready for the celebration. We're excited about what God's doing here. Bring friends with you. We have plenty of food to eat. It'll be awesome. So thank you.